rising. We've got a jam-packed show for you today. Rihanna, let's get started. Uh, obviously, another tragedy unfolding before us, so yeah. we want to talk about that. As three children and three adults were shot yes, and killed yesterday in a Nashville grade school, the suspect, 28-year-old Audrey Hale, was also shot and killed by the police. Hale is transgender and a former student of the Covenant School, a private Presbyterian school. Police say Hale left a manifesto detailing, quote, resentment for having to go to that school as the reason behind the massacre. Officials have also determined Hale was heavily armed with at least two assault rifles and kept detailed plans in preparation for the shooting, including by hand-drawing maps and conducting personal surveillance. So far, police believe Hale shot at random and that no individuals were targeted. Those killed have been identified as Evelyn Dykhouse, Haley Scruggs, and William Kinney, all age nine. Cynthia Peake, age 61, Catherine Coons, age 60, and Mike Hill, age 61. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre spoke about the tragedy at the podium yesterday. Let's watch some of that. In his State of the Union, the president called on Congress to do something to stop the epidemic of gun violence, tearing families apart, tearing communities apart. How many more children have, have to be murdered before Republicans in Congress will step up and act to pass the assault weapons ban. Meanwhile, over on CNN this morning, national security analyst Julia Juliet Kayem encouraged viewers not to be distracted by the shooter's gender identity. Each of these school shootings has motive and means. Motive goes to the particular person, what's their mental health uh, situation, what happened at the school, why did they choose that target? Uh, as Andrew was saying, what clues did they leave behind? What was their community seeing? And then the means. And then that's when you get the connectivity, right? That's when you start to see these are all starting to look the same, right? I sort of think now, like, we don't own guns in this country. Guns own us at this stage. And this is where we have to now focus on an important part of, of an agenda, which includes mental health, protecting our kids, fortifying schools, but also the connectivity, which is a certain kind of gun. I, I, you know, look, pronouns, pronouns do not kill children, right? People with guns kill children, and it's going to be a distraction in our coverage and keep us from what we now know. So, yeah, this in many ways is very similar to debates we've had on this issue so many times. Every time this happens, there's a back and forth about whether there are individual factors, whether it's mental health, et cetera, that cause this particular individual to abuse their constitutional privilege to have access to a gun, to own a gun, to kill people. In some cases, the person has procured the gun illegally, so they do not have a constitutional access to the gun, in which case people say that it's not really about a gun control issue, it's about an illegal act that wouldn't have been bound by gun restrictions whatsoever. Other people still say that if there had been, if it's harder to access a gun even illegally because there are more protections or restrictions on gun owners, that it would have prevented the crime. And around and around we go. But this one has the additional added quirk of being one of the few. I think there's only been four ever reported uh, mass shootings that involve someone with a non-traditional gender identity. And there are some um, conservatives, I would say, that are pointing to that as what caused this incident to the exclus uh, exclusion of any other factors. Sure. I mean, we need to know more, obviously. The, the gender identity, it certainly seems potentially relevant. It is so—so uh, so this is someone who was a biological woman. Um, 
it is so rare, as you know. It, I mean, it's incredibly rare for mass shootings, violence in general, but it's particularly mass shootings. You know, we talk about the statistics of them. There's a lot of people often try to bring in the racial element, even though it, it actually does, for mass shooters at least, tracks pretty closely to the overall racial makeup of the population. Um, that is not true of gender. Overwhelmingly, mass shooters are male. Um, so it's it's so statistic. So it's so. This is something I want to learn more information about. Uh, you know, what was this person's mental health? And, and obviously, and every time there's a mass shooting or an instance of violence that captures the nation's attention, there is always an effort by people on all sides of the political spectrum and in all corners of the media to to try to explain uh, where they're thinking. You know, what led them to do it? What do they have an ideology? Is it is it um, identifiably political? Is it that they're just mentally ill? Are they lashing out at uh, coworkers or at a school that, that they had some connection with? Is it, it seems to be that that was the case for this shooter, although uh, it was a long time ago. I, she's in, I think, I believe they said she was 28 now, so it's not. Yeah, not and they, recent. I mean, they identify obviously as a, as a man, um, but yeah, they were 28 years old, so it was some time since, you know, he had been at that school. It's, it's interesting. There's this take. Um, Charlie Kirk, for instance, tweeted, instead of banning assault rifles, we should ban gender-affirming care for kids. It does. It's an interesting kind of perspective, given that it seems, from what we know as of right now about, her, about their, uh, their manifesto, that they resented going to a Christian school, a presumably more conservative school, that might not have been as open to their transition and their, you know, chosen gender identity. And the, the, having a response to that be you want more kids to feel in that position, more kids to have that tension with their educational environments is an odd one for me. I don't know. What do you, what do you make of that instinct to say, well, we, we have to put more kids in the, in the scenario that the, the shooter was in, whereas they were wanting to present a certain way and wanting to live their lives a certain way in their school environment, presumably didn't allow them to breeding that kind of resentment. Right. I mean, I, I I want someone, I want a young person to have the educational experience that best aligns with their values and their family's values and is best for them. I think that's going to be different for a variety of kids. So no, I, I don't want to force um, one way or the other on young people. And we, we simply, we don't know in this case whether it's this person lashing out at yeah, an unaccepting kind of environment um, or whether this person has deeper mental health problems, did eventually, did get whatever kind of affirming or supportive care, but has a kind of mental health problem or some other problem, you know, we don't know. And, you know, it's, and at the end of the day, it's horrible and tragic regardless, because there's no amount of nothing this person went through or, or endured um, comes close to justifying their behavior, their violence against their murder of, of, of a half a dozen people, including three nine-year-olds. Yeah. Um, it's truly sickening, truly sickening. Uh, in so many cases, previously we've known that the individual was actually known to law enforcement. Um, so far, I've not seen anything indicating that that might be the case. Uh, you know, as you said, some, uh, sometimes it's a case where the person, right, they obtain the guns legally, but, but given there, there should have been more vet, there, the law actually cry, requires better vetting and they shouldn't have been able to get the gun. We don't know if that's the case here. Um, I also want to point out, because we've been very critical of law enforcement in some, like Uvalde, where they, you know, they stood around for forever 
as kids were dying. Um, in this case, law enforcement, I think within 14 minutes of the shooting beginning, um, arrived on the scene. They came under fire. The, the shooter fired, upon, fired at them through windows, was shattering windows. I've seen some of the, the footage. Um, they, they engaged the shooter. They did not hold back, wait for reinforcements, wait till it was safe. They charged the shooter, and they killed this individual. Mm -hmm. And it, it was 14 minutes from uh, beginning to end, and uh, undoubtedly saved more lives. So, uh, so hopefully, you know, when Columbine happened and, and the, the police waited outside forever, and there was, we're supposed to learn from that, police don't do, and it's in their training materials, don't wait, go yeah. in. Um, maybe, maybe find, that has sunk in to enough police departments. Yeah, well, they have gotten enough practice, unfortunately. Yeah. All right, we'll continue to follow that story, of course, and I'll tell you what's on my radar coming up next. What is on your radar today, Robbie? Well, you'll like this one, Brianna. <laughs> so last week, members of Congress relentlessly grilled Xu Chu, the CEO of Chinese social media giant TikTok. Now, anger toward Chu was remarkably bipartisan. Both Republicans and Democrats consider TikTok an addictive service that harms kids, provides a vector for Chinese government propaganda, and also captures the personal data of millions of Americans. Now, these concerns are not entirely unfounded. The Chinese government's thirst for censorship is well documented. The Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has gone to great lengths to prohibit content relating to Winnie the Pooh, wherever it might appear, for instance, due to the beloved character's resemblance to General Secretary Xi Jinping. And when Google attempted to relaunch in China, the government forced the company to restrict searches relating to Tiananmen Square. Chu testified before Congress that political dissent is widely available on TikTok, but there is plenty of evidence that the social media platform has suppressed content at the Chinese government's behest. Let's watch. Have any moderation tools been used to remove content on TikTok associated with the Uyghur genocide? Yes or no? We do not remove uh, that kind of content. TikTok is a place of freedom of expression and challenges, like I said, if you use our app, you can go on it, and you will see a lot of users around the world Thank expressing you. content in, on that topic and many others. Thank you. What about the massacre in Tiananmen Square, yes or no? I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Uh, the massacre in Tiananmen Square. That kind of content is available on our platform. You can go and search it. I will remind you that making false or misleading statements to Congress is a federal crime. I understand. Uh, again, okay. if you go on our Thank platform, you, you will find question. that content. Okay, thank you. The U.S. government, however, is guilty of similar sins as China. Both the Twitter files and the Facebook files have shown that American social media companies have faced relentless pressure to restrict speech on controversial subjects like COVID-19 vaccines, Hunter Biden, the 2020 election. Federal agencies, including and not limited to the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the FBI, and even the White House itself have all communicated with moderators at social media companies, urging them to take action against legal speech. The U.S. government's behavior on this front has been so disreputable, so thoroughly at odds with the principles of the First Amendment, that all Americans should be deeply skeptical of efforts by federal lawmakers and bureaucrats to claim for themselves even more power over tech platforms. But that's precisely the point of the TikTok hearings, to give Congress a pretext to unilaterally ban TikTok. Now, it's worth repeating, 
So nobody misunderstand me, the TikTok's position as an entity beholden to the CCP is genuinely worrying. And though investigators have not produced much compelling evidence of genuine malfeasance in the data collection category, no one should be overly naive about the CCP's capabilities. As the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression noted in a statement about banning TikTok, we recognize the significant national security threat posed by troves of sensitive information in the hands of an adversarial government. The legal obligation of the Chinese companies with regard to data sharing with the Chinese Communist Party, startling. Even so, FIRE rightly frets that banning TikTok would ultimately, quote, shut down an immensely popular means of communication for the tens of millions of Americans who use the app every day to share and consume information, news, ideas, political advocacy, and creative content. TikTok, as FIRE points out, is a vital platform for, pe for people to engage in free expression, including and especially young people. The U.S. government taking action against the platform because they don't like TikTok content? Well, that's itself an act of vast censorship and a massive expansion of federal authority. I want to be clear on that. Now, worse still, there is every reason to think the U.S. government will misuse this newfound power to unilaterally banish specific social media platforms. The Restrict Act, which is a bipartisan bill that would authorize the Commerce Department to take action against TikTok, also empowers the Secretary of Commerce to, quote, deter, disrupt, prevent, prohibit, and mitigate transactions involving information and communications technology products in which any foreign adversary has any interest and poses undue or unacceptable risk to national security. Hmm. The bill has co-sponsors of both parties and is supported by the Biden administration. Hmm. But the Biden administration's FBI has taken the position that American social media companies were infiltrated by Russian bots and that companies like Twitter are failing democracy by refusing to censor even more content. Mainstream media outlets and a coalition of government-supported think tanks have incorrectly accused social media platforms of being little more than useful idiots for Russian-backed disinformation campaigns. Should we expect the veritable army of federal bureaucrats obsessed with policing speech on social media platforms to narrowly utilize this new mandate to deter foreign threats and focus solely on China? Or should we anticipate that every weapon added to their arsenal is a threat to the free speech rights of everyday Americans? If the U.S. government really wants to counter Chinese tyranny, it should take greater pains not to resemble China's own approach to speech. Confusingly, some media commentators who oppose TikTok on grounds that the Chinese government is an enemy seem to almost admire the CCP's pre uh, preference from for state-issued propaganda. Zaid Jelani is a reporter at News Nation, and of course, Bacha Ungar Sargon is our co-host here at Rising, and now both observed recently that China does not grant its citizens full access to TikTok. The Chinese version of TikTok, Bacha noted, kicks off kids after 40 minutes of use, and much of the content is taken up with educational videos about how to garden and how to be a good citizen. But China, in my view, is run by a government that denies its citizens fundamental free speech rights. It denies them full political rights. It is complicit in genocide. Its COVID-19 lockdowns were among the most repressive in the entire world. And it has covered up information about the pandemic's origins. The CCP's habit of restricting kids' access to uncensored content and propagandizing them into good citizenship is authoritarian. American lovers of freedom should recoil, not seek to emulate this. We should be especially wary of equipping our own government with similar tools. Today it's TikTok. Tomorrow, who knows? So I was looking through this Restrict Act, which is one of the ways in which uh, the federal government would, would claim for itself the power to actually ban TikTok, because I really can't do it right now. 
And I'm reading through it, and I'm like, well, this is, my God, this, this is, I mean, how many times do people have to learn this lesson? How many patriotics do we have to have? How many times will well-meaning political figures give the government more power to address some specific threat and then find out later we're all, that, that it's, it's been totally weaponized against Americans' free speech rights, um, and it's being used to silence you on all sorts of topics that have nothing to do with legitimate national security purposes? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The idea of this TikTok hearing coming on the backs of the Twitter files hearing and the complete and total hypocrisy and kind of lack of insight into what they are claiming happened in China versus what they just denied was an issue in the United States of America was a, was really galling to observe. Also, I got to say, it it's borderline hilarious for me to watch Americans be mad at the TikTok CEO for the fact that Chinese kids are getting ostensibly better educational content on TikTok because of the restrictions in China that they purport to not want to have in the United States of America. I'm mad at China for being more authoritarian to give their kids better educational content. Why aren't American kids being served up a similar kind of content? Well, because these are the freedoms you purport or you're purporting to protect by kicking TikTok out of the country. It's it's a tangled web they've woven. I don't even know if they know what they're after at this point. And it's really really frustrating and disappointing that there aren't more elected officials. As you've pointed out, this is a largely bipartisan enterprise. There have been a few people here and there. ASD, we talked about her um, opposition to this yesterday. Jabal, Moment, Jabal Bowman has pushed back. But uh, on the whole, that there isn't more outrage about this, especially given that half of all Americans are on this app and use this app regularly. It's, it's, it's an interesting political quandary. And I was seeing uh, the media, various media publications were pushing back on this. I think they were pushing back in ways that are frankly unhelpful or at least unhelpful. I mean, it's going to take different approaches, I guess, to dissuade people. Um, I, I saw a lot of people specifically saying, basically, it's racist to ban TikTok, and like that's not gonna that's not gonna be convincing to people on the right. Um, I, I think what would be more convincing is like, do you know how the threat of foreign actors empowering has been used to silence you? Have you figured that out yet? That is that was the pretext for for a relentless campaign of demonization of of free speech relating to elections, Hunter Biden, etc. It's all been about foreign threats in the inflated largely fictitious threat of Russian bad actors on Facebook and Twitter that we now know it was that threat was overhyped dramatically, that it's, it's a very small number of accounts. It was not targeted enough to make much of a political difference. Um, tons of people, real jet people, Americans, expressing their opinions wrongly targeted by think tanks and government-funded think tanks as Russian bots. Like, this just happened. This will happen again yes, if you pass this law. Yes, it will. And in kind of resistance libs who say, well, it's not a big deal if it's if it's accusations that are undermining Donald Trump should remember that right after Bernie won Nevada, what did the New York Times headline Blair? Russia is said to be interfering to aid Sanders in Democratic primaries. Right. It's a tale as old as time. Set, said to be. Oh, <laughs> and then Bernie had yeah. to do like a media cycle where he yeah. went around saying, I disavow Russia. It's ridiculous. And it will, whoever you like, whatever you support, yeah. these kinds of laws will be used to weaponize, be weaponized against their candidates. Mark my words, if this law passed a couple of years from now, well, there, there'll be some horrific new censorship regime and people will go, why is the government doing that? Well, because of this law. Yeah, pitch perfect. I couldn't agree more with this radar, Robbie. Thank you, Brianna. We'll have more rising right after this.
A new report confirms members of the Biden family were the recipients of payments related from Hunter Biden's international business deals. Speaking with Fox News' Maria Bartiromo, Republican Senator Ron Johnson unveiled that a Chinese-owned bank headquartered in L.A. handed over a cache of financial records that strengthens the House Oversight Committee's investigation. Here's Johnson on Sunday Morning Futures. Let's listen. The bank records we got, and this is pretty interesting, we got them from Cafe Bank. You know, is that the Chinese uh, Communist Party? Is that a shot across, across uh, President Biden's uh, bow saying, listen, this is some of the information we have. Uh, if you don't toe the line, if you don't uh, do uh, things that uh, please us, uh, we're going to even provide even more information. A bank from China, let's face it, uh, the Communist Party controls uh, those types of institutions. They, they willingly gave us the, uh, the documents that backed up the Treasury records. The GOP has maintained the Hunter Biden probe is aimed at uncovering any connection the president might have had to China. Now, Joe Rogan gave his own take on Biden's link to China. Here's what he said in a recent episode of his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. Let's watch. He's full of bluster and he lied a lot about his record and his, his education background. He lied about a bunch of things. He's a he's a goofy old politician that's career been politician. in that career. Yeah. He's been in that lying business forever. And and the China money that he's been getting for years, Crazy. The, hooking up his son, Crazy. The, the computer, denying the computer when it's like, bro, you could see it, bro. Crazy. It was, before the FBI declared that this was real, I was already watching videos of him like, bro, how are you going to say this is not real? It's all over the internet it's all over the suppressed internet it before the election yeah they suppressed it off of twitter and the fact that the liberals keep saying that there's nothing to that like what are you talking about if that was trump if that was trump and donald trump jr was doing street crack with hookers in vietnam and getting foot jobs you'd be and, like and getting 10 million dollars from yes, from these places Burisma. when he's not equipped yes. to have those type of jobs yes he was getting money from china and from ukraine Look, of course it's true that if it were Trump, the liberals would be losing their minds over it. Look at how they're framing the Stormy Daniels payoff. I think I said this yesterday. Yeah. It is an election. It is a potential uh, election campaign finance crime. But liberals aren't treating it like a campaign finance they crime. They love the salacious They love the salacious of aspect it. of it. Exactly. So if, it, if the shoe were on the other foot, I think, yeah. of course, it's true that liberals would be all over it. They were all over, rightly, I think, some of the nepotism issues with the Trump members of his family, giving them actual staff positions, giving them offices in the White House. All of that was inappropriate. I think liberals were right to point that out. And I think Republicans, conservatives are right to balk at the idea that it's supposed to be a nothing burger, that... Um, Biden's children were getting these huge sums mm -hmm. of money from whomever it was, in this case, uh, well, right. China and, and they need to, the Republicans need to keep their eye on the prize because ultimately the antics of Hunter Biden involving drugs and sex workers or whatever, who cares? He's not the president. Um, what matters is if he used his last name to engage in an influence campaign that roped in his father in some way. That's what we need to know. And then, of course, we also need to know about the law enforcement decisions that led to um, the suppression of the laptop story and all that, what, why they didn't, why the FBI didn't want to look, you know, why they slow rolled it, that, those kinds of things. So I'm glad the Republicans are looking into this. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's always be a lot being promised in terms of the Hunter Biden probe that we're going to have some big revelation that never quite comes out. Again, we, ha we have learned that you know, Hunter Biden was clearly trying to trade on his last name uh, in a variety of schemes. Um, what we, we don't have any smoking gun. And, and we know, I would say we can say with confidence that in his pitch to 
to governments for his influence. His pitch was, you know, how close he is to his father, dad takes his calls, dad loves him, wants to help him out, the big guy, et cetera. We don't yet know on the other end that President Biden really did anything um, uh, to, to encourage that or, you know, to become involved with it. It's possible. And we for need sure. further investigation. For sure. I, my concern would be this from an electoral perspective. Back in 2016, a very small number of insightful journalists, including Nathan Robinson at Current Affairs, pointed out that to the extent that Donald Trump's vulnerabilities were this kind of corruption, longstanding um, kind of uh, inappropriate criminal behavior, being a bad landlord in New York, uh, making false accusations against the Central Park Five, being not paying his debts, those kinds of things, to the extent that that sort of thing might have made him look bad. A candidate like Hillary Clinton, who had the Wall Street speeches and all of this kind of financial propriety on her end, would neutralize it. It would be a wash. And then suddenly, instead of having this kind of huge vulnerability that you could go after Trump for, you'd have to find other things. And in fact, that's what happened. I think in large part, to the extent that a cleaner candidate could have landed some real um, blows against Trump and maintain a kind of moral high ground. Hillary Clinton was not that candidate. Certainly and the, not. And the concern <laughs> is, is, Donald, is um, Joe Biden going to get into a situation because of the messiness yeah. and the implications around his son and other family members are implicated in this as well, that if it becomes another matchup between him and Donald Trump, that he's not going to have the clean hands that he largely was able to hold on to, partly because of the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, going into the 2020 race. Yeah, I mean, it's—who who raised this point? I, I think it was Joe Rogan, mm. uh, maybe in that same interview, about how— um, you know, it wasn't facilitating the exact same way because one wasn't a campaign payment. But the Clintons back in the 90s tried to keep quiet all sorts of um, uh, sexual matters involving Bill. So this is not this was not unique to Trump. So it, it is. You're right there. Then it's then it's both sized enough that you yeah. can make make a thing about it. Yeah. And, and look, does it matter if it's. Uh, technically breaking the law versus kind of general impropriety mm -hmm. when the part that you're really mad at with Trump is not the technically breaking the law because, again, Hillary Clinton violated that same election law issue and was fined for it. Mm -hmm. But the impropriety, no. Obviously, you, you care about the salacious right. aspect. She violated that law paying for a discredited intelligence report yes. that caused a media firestorm and wrongly influenced a lot of national yes. commentators to believe that uh, Trump was literally compromised by Russia and that Russia's influence over our government and and all sorts of things. And the sexual deviant. Yeah. <laughs> P-tape. <laughs> P-tape. Right. You know, so look, right. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. Like, d Democrats seem to think that they can make these accusations of disinformation and bad faith, and, and these things are going to go away. It's common sense. Like, people have a common sense, intuitive understanding of what is and isn't an appropriate behavior. And you can say what you want. You can, you, you can say that what Trump did was different because he's being, you know, there's a, a, a law that he violated and the New York AG is going to get him and all of that. You have to, at some point, reckon with where voters are coming from. Voters are, frankly, I think, are kind of sick of all of it. I think voters would—Republican voters, conservative-leaning voters would really prefer that Donald Trump weren't in, in any of that mess. They would prefer that he weren't an election denier. They would prefer that that embarrassing uh, uh, Georgia call didn't happen, where he's trying to influence the election. And Democrats, frankly, if they would admit it to themselves, would prefer to have a candidate that, whose children weren't running around causing this kind of embarrassment. You know, it's, it's a real indictment of an American political system that 
that they can't seem to put forward a candidate who doesn't have an embarrassing family situation that's undermining their integrity in office. But here we are. And at a that's certain what democracy point, gives you. It gives you Hillary and Trump. Well, it gives you Biden and Trump. I would argue that that's Might give what, us Biden and Trump again. <laughs> I think that's what an oligarchy gives you, when the only people who can run for president are people from political legacies, dynasties like Clinton's, or who are themselves literal oh, billionaires, not, right. literal billionaires like Donald Trump, who can largely self-finance their fa uh, campaigns and weather a lot of the political storm. I don't think a different kind of person could have defeated, coming from nowhere, you know, 16, 17 other candidates, whatever it was in the Republican primary, uh, when he was not the favored one. Back in 2016. Well, I mean, obviously his considerable wealth was a tremendous advantage. It, it was his easy access to, um, to, to advertising he didn't have to pay for, Absolutely. media attention that Absolutely. really, really worked and that's, his advantage. You know, Joe Biden's a former VP. He yeah. ran for president many times before that, unsuccessfully. Uh, but some combination of having uh, Obama's boost helped him in key states like South Carolina. He was the person the Democratic Party rallied behind, and that's how you get to be president. And at the same time we're seeing that, we're seeing the Democratic Party hinting at the idea that they will not even allow a primary debate because they are very good at shutting out anybody who is not an anointed, chosen candidate. Uh, to rise up through the ranks. And so we don't have a real primary system. They're much better at that than the Republican Party, which cannot cannot <laughs> exercise control over who's running. And it, it's a messy, uh, actual battle. There are and actual arguments. Thing. There are actually ideological divides. Uh, there's tactical divides. Yeah. Very different from the Democratic yeah. Party. And I think that's why the Republican Party, frankly, is attractive to a lot of people right now. Mm. There's more ideological diversity. There's at least the perception that some people are fighting for the public because they are fighting each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Democrats uh, fetishize a kind of solidarity to to Washington that is frankly repellent to the average voter who wants to see fidelity to them, not to their other colleagues in Congress. Well, next on Rising, Congresswoman Nancy Mace will join us to discuss the Nashville shooting, abortion, and more. Stay tuned for that. During coverage of the Nashville school shooting, a woman interrupted a Fox News report to make an impassioned plea for gun control measures. Let's listen to that. I have been lobbying in D.C. since we survived a mass shooting in July. I have met with over 130 lawmakers. How is this still happening? How are our children still dying and why are we failing them? Gun violence is the number one killer of children and teens. It has overtaken cars. Assault weapons are contributing to the border crisis and fentanyl. We are arming cartels with our guns and our goose loose gun laws. And these shootings and these mass shootings will continue to happen until our lawmakers step up and pass gun safety legislation. South Carolina Representative Nancy Mace joins us now to discuss. Welcome to Rising, Congresswoman. Thank you for having me today. Now, Congressman Mays, you've been a staunch opponent of gun control measures in the past. After the Uvalde school shooting last year, you tweeted, passing laws that only limit law-abiding gun owners won't fix the problem. Now that we face another school shooting, do you hold the same position? Well, I guess I would ask, you ask these questions every weekend after, after there are multiple deaths in Chicago where there is gun control. Um, yes, I am for the Constitution and protecting the rights of law-abiding citizens. What I'm not for is uh, unsafe communities, unsafe schools. Um, this should be an issue that we look at nationally everywhere. And this is a huge problem. In fact, 
my kids uh, practice at a field where there were over 30 shots last year fired in a parking lot next to a children's little league uh, baseball game, okay? And so this affects families everywhere across the country. One of the things that we have to do is look at the research, look at the information, and understand why this is happening in our country. It's very clear the Nashville shooter yesterday was deeply mentally disturbed, mentally ill, and had major mental health issues. And so what are we doing to try to prevent someone who is a bad person trying to get a gun? Obviously, background checks, strengthening our background checks is, is one way to do that. And it is supported by the vast majority of Americans, whether you're Republican or Democrat. But in places where we have gun control, where we're talking about Chicago, for example, where you can't have um, a rifle like an AR-15, you're only allowed a 9mm pistol. Every single weekend, people, adults and children are getting shot and killed. But we don't talk about that in the mainstream press. We don't talk about those issues um, that are going on in Chicago. And it's a huge problem. You look where they have gun control in California, more gun control than any other state in the country. And yet they still continue to have mass shootings. Now, things that I'm for, I'm for common sense measures to keep our communities safe. I was one of only a handful of Republicans last year that co-sponsored a Democrat bill called the Active Shooter Alert. I've looked at and questioned why we have multiple databases with criminal information when the FBI is doing a background check. Why is there not one database where you can know in 60 seconds where this is a bad guy trying to get a gun? We have so many tools um, and software and the ability to be on top of this issue and safety in our communities but we can't talk about that because the fringes of both sides, we've got people that want to ban guns on one side, we've got people that don't want to ban them on the other, but very few people are willing to meet somewhere in the middle and find what is that common sense solution that will keep our kids safe and keep our communities safe and keep guns out of the hands of bad guys. And yeah, so I, I've been working on this issue for a really long time from as a state lawmaker, now as a member of Congress. And it's deeply frustrating. The FBI, when they're doing a background check, you're only allowed to use a fax machine when talking to local law enforcement agencies. When Dylan Roof went to go get a gun and, and murder nine black church members at Mother Emanuel, that didn't need to happen. I think you're so right to point to how much agreement there is across partisan lines on common sense gun reforms. I, and I think it's really important also to focus on why there are so many gun deaths in places like Chicago. Um, you know, fewer than half, only four, uh, four in 10 guns that are involved in killings in Chicago originate in Chicago. One of the problems that they are experiencing there is that weaker gun laws in nearby states account for the majority of sourcing for gun deaths in the, in the state. Uh, additionally, it is also the case that if you look at gun-related deaths across states in America, they're overwhelmingly concentrated in states that have much weaker gun laws. So I wonder what you make of that and how you would uh, go about addressing the concentration of gun violence in yeah. a place like Chicago, given data, how many guns come yeah. from other neighboring states. I, yeah, I'm a very data-driven, research-driven person. So in the state of South Carolina, we have um, we have gun laws, we have open carry with a, with a permit, concealed carry permit, et cetera. And we do have a significant number of people that are found with firearms illegally over the age of 21, 21 to 39. But we don't charge and prosecute those individuals for the gun crimes that they are committing. And that's an issue that is prevalent in a number of different states. And 
And I've gone to my state law enforcement division and asked for data on gun crimes, for example, and you just can't get it. And then when you do get it, you, you'll, they'll send you hundreds of pages of information that you then got to take a calculator and manually add up all of this data together. And it's not it's not relevant and it's not it's not easy to get to because we want to know why people aren't being charged for, with gun crimes, where we need to understand why people that have uh, charges on their record are able to go buy a gun, a gun even when they pass a background check. When in 2023 you have all this technology, you should know in 60 seconds whether this is a bad person trying to get a gun. And, and these are all things that people, whether you, are, you own guns or don't own guns, that, that's just a very common sense measure. And yet we can't even, we can't even have this conversation in this country we can't find that middle ground. And in fact, you know, one of my colleagues in Texas after Uvalde, Congressman Gonzalez, I mean, the party censured him for one of his votes that he felt was uh, was important to his community because of what happened there. And so we all take a different approach. But, you know, the minute that you want to talk about finding that middle ground, finding some common ground and common sense, you then get attacked by either side. And I see this as an issue on both sides. And I've been working on gun crime since I was a state lawmaker. I had a bill in the state legislature when I found out after Dillon Roof and after Parkland, Florida, that the state of South Carolina doesn't require all the different agencies that have criminal data, the court systems, the counties, the municipalities, SLED, state troopers, all these different agencies have different databases with criminal information, and they're not required to put it all in one place so that you can find out in 60 seconds what's going on with someone's criminal record. That doesn't exist in our state. It doesn't exist in most states. And that is a real problem when we're talking about strengthening background checks, when we're talking about getting uh, guns out of the hands of people that will use them um, in mass shootings. And so uh, it's a huge problem. But I think one of the things we can do is is looking at, at our databases with criminal information. We're just unwilling to have that conversation. It's, it's devastating, has devastating consequences in our country. I want to shift gears just a little bit, talk about another issue you've been very vocal on. Uh, recently, you've written and spoken out uh, about the abortion issue, um, saying that uh, you, you believe that uh, the Republican Party, some voices in it being too uh, extreme on the issue, uh, hurt the party in the midterms, and that you think most people would support a more middle ground approach. Can you elaborate on your thinking here? Yeah, this is a deeply passionate issue to me personally. I was raped at the age of 16. I dropped out of high school at 17. And just a few weeks ago, for example, there were 21 members of the South Carolina State Legislature that not only did they draft a bill, but they actually filed a bill that would criminalize women who had abortion and charge them with murder. And in the state of South Carolina, murder can meet execution. So you would, in a, in a sense, the state, if it were to pass, and it'll never pass, thankfully, but they were going to give more rights to a rapist than the woman who had been raped. They were going to put women up for the death penalty who had abortions for any reason. And so you, you see these conversations happening and actual legislation being filed and it's like, what the hell is going on here? This is not right. Um, and certainly doesn't show any compassion to women. And we as Republicans, as a party, learn nothing from the midterm election if that is the playbook going forward. And in my issue, I represent a very purple district where independents outnumber Republicans and Democrats and independents outnumber the Republican Party two to one in my district. But the number one issue in my district right now is inflation. The number two issue is abortion. And our district went from mildly pro-choice, pre-Roe v. Wade, and then it went to vast majority 
pro-choice after Roe v. Wade because people can be pro-life but also not want the laws to change. And that's what we saw happening. And the Republican Party was tone deaf on this issue. It's going to hurt us in 24. It'll hurt our chances of winning the White House back. And we're going to be in a dogfight to win and keep the majority in 24 in the House. And I just don't understand why this is not an issue that is top of mind for lawmakers in D.C. and around the country that want to find that middle ground. The minute I start talking about birth control access for every woman, especially women that live in rural areas and don't have access to an OBGYN doctor, pro-life groups will stop talking to me. And that's what's mm -hmm. happened to this conversation. And it's wild that this, that this is where we are in 2023. Mm -hmm. Representative Mace, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. And we'll have more rising right after this. Conservatives are coming out in full force against gender-affirming care in the wake of yesterday's school shooting in Nashville. This comes after news reports are confirming that the suspect was a transgender man. Hmm. And we're going to play a little bit of uh, footage now from the Nashville PD's uh, body cam footage uh, showing them going in, confronting, and killing the shooter. Um, you know, be wary of this. This is some strong content, so don't watch if it's going to disturb you. Let's play it. Like I said, when we talked about this earlier, uh, this was a very successful police operation. Um, it took about, I think, 14 minutes between them getting the call and the death, the killing of the shooter. Um, so, uh, you know, we've criticized a lot of really bad police mm -hmm. behavior in the past around these kinds of issues. So good to see um, Nashville uh, PD handling this the correct way, which is to engage. Right. You don't wait for backup. You don't wait to start some kind of dialogue. You you go in even if, you know, even, even if they're shooting, if they're firing, mm -hmm. that's what you're supposed to do, and they were able to take the shooter out. So that is good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so much of the debate right now is centering on the extent to which the fact of the shooter being transgender can be blamed for this incident. Now, mm -hmm. of course, it is true that I think even by the most expansive counts, four non-binary or trans people have ever uh, been linked to one of these mass shootings. Some people point out that it was the Colorado shooter identified as non-binary. Some people think to avoid a hate crime charge themselves, but even if you count that person, four in the midst of the thousands of mass shootings that happened over the course of the last couple of years is a drop in the bucket. That being said, the New York Post's cover today uh, is transgender killer targets Christian school manifesto leads to six dead, including three young kids. People have made the argument that they are not saying that the person did it or that the gun did it, but that the manifesto and linking it to the fact of this person being trans is the cause of it. Um, 
Turning Point USA's Benny Johnson uh, tweeted, trans ideology frames our movement as saving kids from genocide. In reality, it is they who are committing genocide against children. Listen to their rhetoric. If you don't affirm their existence, you deserve to die. Of course, again, this is a very anomalous uh, um, case. Would we say that of, you know, white straight men who are more typically um, the perpetrators well, in these situations? I, mean, I, I, I would argue against many, that. Many, okay, well, Sure, but many in the liberal media would. I, I have I have seen so many articles about banning white straight men. No, about the whiteness and not so much the straightness, but the white the whiteness. We need to talk about whiteness. All that's that's often a response to mass shooter situations, Is even though white yeah. people are not like disproportionately likely to commit. Is it analogous shootings. to saying that we should ban the existence of white men or not allow them to? I, I've certainly read articles about decentering whiteness or eliminating whiteness. Are there, I'm sorry, wait, I'm sorry. In are response there, to are there, mass shootings. Are there legislative efforts to end white straight men? No. To prevent white straight men from identifying as white straight men or well, you're, you're describing white what, straight men. What, con, what certain commentators are saying in response to this, I'm saying well, I no, often I, that I, commentary. I'm just, I don't. I'm support describing that the idea that this is this is this incident, this tragedy is being used to advance to get, provide fodder for a legal movement that's already underway, to pass any number of bills that prevent people from. Um, uh, getting gender-affirming care. And the irony is that apparently, and this manifesto is apparently set to be released, the, this killer here has pointed to those exact kind of restrictions on their ability to identify how they wanted to and the conservatism, presumably, of this Christian school as part of why they targeted it, which is obviously disgusting and wrong. Um, you know, three children were killed, three adults were killed. This is a, a horrific tragedy. The question remains whether it's fair to say that preventing people from transition would prevent a crime like well, this going forward. Sure, I don't want to prevent people from transitioning. I, I'm not going to be looking to the the killer for public policy advice, obviously. Well, no, the uh, question is whether legislators, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who tweeted, how much hormones like testosterone and medications for mental illness was the transgender Nashville school shooter taking? Everyone can stop blaming guns now. I mean, when legislators are pointing to whether or not drugs taken in the course of transition are responsible for killing and whether that should be a policy response to mass shootings well, when this is okay. one of only three Certainly, or four incidences of a trans person ever being involved in a mass I think shooting be is a good question, okay. right? I think it would be premature to conclude anything along those lines and, again, to state where my own policies lie, I would not be prohibiting uh, particularly consenting adults from taking whatever drugs or hormones or surgeries they want to to make their lives better, in, in their opinion. It is, I, I know from, uh, I, th I think there have been um, deaths, murder, suicides in the, um, in the uh, extreme sports and wrestling categories having to do with testosterone being taken. Um, have you seen stories of that where there was, I've, I've read this at least a couple times, where someone who was on one of those regi uh, regimens um, killed his family and himself? So it, it would not be a totally crazy idea, but that's not saying it should be banned or it should be not, like, I mean, it should be explored. This is I mean, I mean, that is such an interesting question, you know. If, if in very Taking a lot rare, of drugs and having a mental health problem can yeah, absolutely sure, be sure, a like, this, reason this, you go out and commit violence. This is violence. what's so interesting. It seems very intuitive for at least some people to say, well, if someone's taking hormones that make them go crazy mm -hmm. and shoot up a place, that those hormones should be banned. 
But if someone is able to access a gun and shoot up a place, Chris the Benoit, idea, that's who I'm wait a minute, about. the idea of banning the weapon that is involved in all of these cases should not be banned. So, you know, the, so many people are pointing out that this language ban, ban transgender, ban gender affirming care. If it were guns, they don't say ban guns, they say have more mental health checks. Mm -hmm have more barriers to getting a gun, have people have to do better licensing requirements, have people be, have to store their guns in a safer way. But that same measuredness isn't being applied to the idea of people being able to access gender-affirming care. Does that seem kind of an imbalance to you, or do you think it's justified to say it's inappropriate to want? And again, I think that the ban, no one, I certainly wouldn't, I'm not arguing to ban guns. I think there's common sense gun legislation that has nothing to do with banning the guns or undermining the Second Amendment. But do you think that, that's, that there is a more of an openness from some of these conservatives that is hypocritical to banning gender-affirming care when they would never want gun rights to be significantly infringed? I mean— Even though both are part of this equation coming together to cause a tragedy I, I think, like this. Yes, I think probably a lot of people of both a conservative or a liberal, liberal persuasion have uh, hypocrisies when it comes to—you're going to have one side saying, right, they want— easy and immediate access to firearms, but lots and lots of prohibitionist uh, restrictions on drugs and those kinds of things. And then the, you're going to have people on the other side who want tons and tons of prohibition uh, mindset to guns, but easy access to drugs. Again, you, know, you, you, you know where I land on these things. I yeah. would tend to handle—I would similarly not want a more—to um, uh, be arresting people and imprisoning more people for um, seeking access to Substances they decide to put in their body or their Second Amendment rights. Uh, I simply, you know, I don't want to restrict these things in general, and I think we tend to scapegoat them uh, in in situations like this, which thankfully remain remain rare. Uh, you know, we can talk about what would have. First, we have to understand the situation. Then we can understand if there's anything that would have gone in if we'd done differently that could have prevented it. If there's some policy recommendation. Um, which, again, might be enforcing background checks. Uh, maybe this person was in the system. We don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But Look, I, I think there's a, there's a legitimate case for all, a lot of the language that's used around a lot of people's interests being very inflammatory in a way that's not productive. You know, Matt Walsh tweeted, I have been telling you for a long time that left-wing trans extremists are violent, dangerous people who have been made to feel absolutely entitled to say and do whatever they want. The deranged claims of genocide are an open invitation to violence. It will go worse from here. Now, I don't agree with that. I do think that there is a kind of hyperbole in some activist language that can, you know, if, if, if you think that the harm that's happening to you is so great, then of course the logical conclusion would be that you are able to take really extreme actions to rectify it, right? At the same time, I think that there's many people who talk about um, hordes coming over the border, white genocide. Um, what was the what was the term that Tucker Carlson was using that everybody was so upset about? Um, uh, uh, that around the last shooter, I forget what it was, who was who made reference to the language that Tucker Carlson had used, and people were making those kind of accusations. I mean, the the, the I'm sorry, the the Buffalo shooter who was talking about all that white supremacy and using the terms that Tucker, Tucker Carlson likes to use. I mean, across the board, you can make that claim that people are using language that is so hyperbolic that it is making people feel entitled to take. Mm -hmm. lives as a consequence to, to rebalance the playing field as they see it's un unequal. But it does strike me as very interesting that where you might see 
say trans people talking about them them being the themselves being the victim of genocides is a problem, and not the kind of white nationalism that has become very mainstream, even on uh, on mainstream channels like Fox, uh, like but, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, again, actually, I I did pull up the article I was I was thinking of. Um, this was Jesse Single in New York Magazine responding to this. Um, he has countless examples of media people and activists drawing a link between mass shootings and whiteness. Um, he has, uh, yeah, the, the I don't, I don't Sprouse did this. But, but um, I think I, Progress said when we were talking about mass shootings, we were talking about white men. Newsweek said if white men— I, I agreed with that, yeah. that you don't need to, to prove well, that. Right, the, 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 the claim isn't that people don't observe. No one's mad that, like, wow, it is really odd. Everybody initially was like, this is so odd. Of course we're going to observe and point out that this was a trans person that killed someone, precisely because it's so rare. Yes. The jump that I'm concerned about is to let's ban trans people. The fact that it is so rare should make the opposite case, not that you sh these people should be banned from existing, I mean, it's very but rare. it's unusual. Trans people are also not a large well, yes, but people percentage have done of the that. population. I'm glad you brought that up, because someone ran the statistics, and even for their representation in the population, they are dramatically underrepresented in, in school shootings. In, in school shootings. That's what this is. This is a—well, there's a difference between school shootings and mass shootings, too. This is both. Yeah. And, and they're dramatically yeah. underrepresented in both, I would— Yeah. There are—well, there are, well, there are not—there are not that— Many. There are a lot of school shootings. There are a lot of incidents involving guns. They happen every day in America. Yeah. Mass shooting incidents right, with a the, high number of casualties I, I, I are that, so rare that I get this all is going to. But the, pro the issue is that they are. The point is they are dramatically underrepresented. So whereas people are pointing to other instances in which it's very common if not overrepresented, common mm -hmm. for white men to be involved in these. And at the, it just in, tracks with their overall population. But it's still like no black people, Asian people. Okay, go ahead. And still, nobody is calling for the banning of white men. We want to have a we want to have a talk. talk well, wait, wait, wait. We want to have a conversation about what social factors are causing this, what's influencing this, what's going on, but not banning them. I think if people wanted to have a conversation about whether or not it is obvious from this person's manifesto that their personal relationship to this school, that the fact that they felt the school was conservative and perhaps did not affirm their identity is directly linked to why they did this. That's obvious and should obviously be a part of the conversation. The part that is distressing for folks is the idea that banning the existence of trans people would prohibit okay. some meaningful number Again, of killings. I don't want to ban anyone. I think what a person on the right would respond to you is saying that you know, they're not trying to ban whiteness, but they are trying to stigmatize whiteness and white people in education. So that is that is the way this group of people making this argument, activists, media figures, their power. You're right; is not to write legislation banning white people, but to have or to to have to infect organizations and institutions with DEI consulting and all that stuff to stigmatize yeah. and... Well, I, I agree. I think yeah. that it's that's wrong. I think some people have that impulse, and I think it's wrong. The point shouldn't be to stigmatize white people or white men. There's such way too many people in the country to be trying to make pariahs of members of our own community. The goal should be to help folks who are obviously in a situation where they're feeling like they need to lash out in this really horrible, destructive way, and I feel the same way about whatever motivated this person um, to act in this way. Just a note, I was talking about great replacement theory. That was the word I couldn't mm -hmm. use. That was the motive for or I believe the Buffalo shooter. And so the question becomes, if we're going to interrogate great replacement theory and whether that was an influence, what ideological drives were happening in each, in each of these, I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to interrogate. I also think it's will, it perfectly um, 
meaningful and important to interrogate whether or not folks are getting access to weapons that make it so much easier for mm -hmm. them to take their internal angst out on a innocent public. I mean, I sort of wonder if we just give if we give too much um, thought and attention to the shooter's alleged motivations from their perspective. I mean, there is a some people worry about a contagion effect yes. where where killers they're doing it for publicity and you know they're going to see their they're not going to see it because they're get killed but their their names will be in headlines yeah. and people will be reading the things they yes. wrote and their thoughts and there's a certain amount of satisfaction they get from that so I kind of want to say to hell with it I don't care what they thought and, and there's an <laughs> argument happening right now about whether or not the shooter's manifesto should be made public it seems right. like that is the intent and that feels to me like potentially a mistake. We're still yeah. talking about, what was it, Elliot, um, the Santa Barbara Shooters Manifesto, because mm -hmm. it was so visceral and so many folks read it, and who knows what influence that, that has had on many people. Right. The Buffalo Shooters Manifesto. Right. Obviously, I don't want to, I don't think the government should stop people from reading things like that, but whether media organizations should behave more responsibly and maybe not even use the person's name, not, you know, give, not pour through their manifesto trying to understand it. Killing people is such a insane and irrational act. And like they're all They're almost by... Also unusual. Yes. It, it's almost by definition crazy. And so if you're trying to find logic and, oh, why? So it all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's natural. We want to understand things. We want to fit the puzzle pieces together. We want to take, like, uh, you know, from TV and movies, like, oh, this is what, yeah, this is what led to the because it like it couldn't happen to us. If we understand right. that, we can figure out how to right. avoid being victims of it. Right. But it's... Bad things happen, and it's frustrating and yeah. not always satisfying to understand why. For sure. More rising right after this. The Department of Justice has announced a new indictment against disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman Fried. Prosecutors allege the former CEO paid out $40 million to at least one Chinese government official in a bribe to unfreeze Alameda Research's accounts in China. These accounts held more than $1 billion in assets, according to the DOJ. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, interesting. So he had his money tied up in a Chinese exchange that they had shut down or they'd frozen the assets of. So he wanted, he had a billion dollars he wanted to move out. So he paid a $40 million bribe to Chinese officials, allegedly. That's what the U.S. government is alleging. Um, I think it's interesting in, uh, in in the context of all the kind of Chinese stuff we're talking about with TikTok and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, rem reminder that this was a this was someone who donated tons of money to uh, to some Democrats, also to some Republicans, also generous media funding of of, of several uh, progressive mainstream media organizations that generated what seemed to me like pretty favorable initial. Coverage very of so. Sam Bakeman-Fried. He was spoken of in very uh, sympathetic terms, in very, oh, but he's so well-meaning, such a whiz kid. You know, he was trying to do something really good, and, and his cause is so noble, and maybe just caught up, got caught up in some stuff. So, so this is interesting that this is what they're trying to get him on right now, and then I assume there will be other charges. Yes, yeah, this is, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. This is from um, the New York Times's most recent coverage. Uh, coverage. Uh, they've now charged Mr. Bankman-Fried with 13 criminal counts, including securities fraud, money laundering, and violating campaign finance laws. Uh, the 31-year-old uh, is facing more years in prison now because of these additional charges, uh, if convicted, and might put, this might put more pressure on him to take a guilty plea, is what people are thinking, by stacking up these kinds of charges. I mean, look, 
you point to the favorable media coverage that he's gotten. Some of it, I would argue, has continued even through his indictment, and he seems to believe that he's going to get favorable media attention. He loves media attention. You know, e even post-indictment, even as he was hiding out in his parents' house, you know, he very famously was very trusting of this media that had been so good to him in the past and was surprised, seemingly, when his DMs with, I think, a Vox reporter were published as an article. And he continues to have these moments where he acts with a degree of hubris, giving these interviews, you know, sitting in front of the camera, potentially with, you know, in one instance, it looked like there were some off-screen actors, maybe even his lawyer parents advising him. But he, he doesn't seem to think that he can incriminate himself. He seems to think that doing these appearances is going to do nothing but improve his standing in the public eye and potentially legally as well. And, and he's very just wrong about that. He's, he's yeah. absolutely wrong about it. I mean, he might improve. It, it, it's totally possible he could improve his, uh, the people's opinion of him in the public. But this, this is not what the public thinks of him is ultimately not going to matter. Like, they're going to charge him. I, I don't see any reason for, from the, a law enforcement perspective why they're not going to, why would they would not go as, as hard as possible on him, um, which is generally what they do. <laughs> you, 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 have, and you have someone who's making all these statements that can then be used against him, who is very easy to sort of entrap himself. You're going you're gonna to throw the book at When he's making your job easier, they're going to have all sorts of things to charge him with because they're going to want us, you know, look at us taking down this major financial, this guy who is doing, doing crimes. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. I don't think, I don't think any of the glorifying media attention is going to do anything, but, you know, he can pad the walls with the profiles. He can pad his jail cell walls with the profiles <laughs> of him. Well, look, I do think that historically people who commit financial crimes, despite having mm -hmm. stolen, in so many cases, so much more money than your average petty criminal stealing, you know, deodorant razors, diapers, or whatever it is from CVS or Walgreens, mm -hmm. tend to do much less time. There is a perception, there is a bias built into the criminal justice system that a certain kind of person can't handle jail, or that their years of their lives spent in jail are more wasted or um, more worthy outside of jail yeah, I, that's than very, other people. Very silly. And But that's... That's why there have been pushes at various times to have um, more standardized sentencing guidelines and, and things, because you know I've heard it in the course of my practice from judges who have opined on how much worse it is for a white-collar criminal to spend time in jail than someone who is poorer or blacker or they seem, they seem to think is going to be more well-suited to an incarcerated mm -hmm. life or maybe who has oh, degrees yeah, or business silly. prospects outside of jail that makes it seem more worthy to some folks to be outside of jail. So I do think that there's a, a sentiment that's hard to escape that this man, this whiz kid, um, would be especially disadvantaged in a criminal context. But we'll see what happens. Yeah. So what do you make of you know, him paying a bribe to a Chinese official? What, you know, we're talking about all our concerns about how uh, you know how the Chinese government's um, behavior can infect can affect us here in the U.S. and the self censorship that goes on and all that. I think that China is a country, one of if not the biggest economy in the world, mm -hmm. and that people are going to have to get used to some things happening in China, without using the specter of China to be some boogeyman about like communism and scariness. And there, there's a way that CCP, Chinese Communist Party, has been injected into a lot of stories to make them seem, I think, sexier than they are. Um, there are other countries in the world. Some of them have different economic systems to the United States. China's government is not communist in any kind of traditional kind of leftist sort of a way. Um, it is authoritarian. Uh, and 
I mean, it's that, communist that is, in the you got to pay the party official for to get your business done. If that's how you want to define communism, you can knock your socks off. Um, mm -hmm. But the I irony is that if we're talking about you have to pay the business person to get your business done, Ukraine, our most uh, entrenched valiant ally is uh, the context of Joe Biden's son being paid these amounts of untoward dollars. He was on the payroll for a Ukrainian energy company getting, what, $50,000 a month for zero expertise whatsoever. So the idea that this is about communism and not about global corruption that is endemic to all of wow. these 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 countries and oligarchs is, is a tough pill to swallow. So a bribe is a bribe. It was an American capitalist doing a bribe to get his way in China. And so it doesn't, I don't know, what do you think about it all? I, I don't know. He's, uh, I think he's going to go down for it, is <laughs> what I think. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, there's such, there's a, I think there's a certain amount of hubris in, in having trusted to put so much money, a billion dollars, in a, a kind of foreign exchange that you'd have even less control over than you would in the U.S. I mean, this is all, this is all so much ga just gambling, <laughs> really. Yes. An, an atrocious amount of gambling, which fine, gamble all you want, but then when you lose, you lose. I mean, this is kind of a theme we're returning to a lot with the, with the, crypto sector and the tech sector more broadly is that gamble with your own money if you want to do it or gamble with other people's money if they're allowing you to do it, but don't expect anybody to come in and rescue you, specifically not the government. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know as this story begins to unfold why the money in the Chinese accounts was frozen. This happened back in 2001, so it predates the fall of FTX that we, we all covered last year. Um, the implication is somehow that it was an inappropriate freezing, but that is not entirely clear. There have been any number of financial issues going along going on with uh, crypto and FTX. This this sector for some time it's been unstable, and it'd be interesting to know the background here um, and whether or not this, there was some indication that we should have had some indication earlier that there were trouble there were there were problems with FTX if we had been paying more attention to what was going on in other parts of the world. Mm. Um, but certainly it is an interesting story to follow precisely because he didn't get scrutiny for a very long time. This seems like one in the line of whiz kids that have gone down from uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos uh, to in a lot of ways the flip-flop the public flip-flop on even how we perceive folks like Mark Zuckerberg went from being one of the best jobs that an aspiring a uh, college graduate could get, you, you know, you can go to graduate Harvard and go work at Facebook or you go work at McKinsey. Uh, and now he is a, a bete noir of politics uh, mm. across the political spectrum. Mm. Now it happens. Well, we'll keep following the tales of Sam Bankman-Fried and we'll have more rising right after this. Protesters and strikers are waging a war throughout France against pension reforms. Protesters, millions of protesters have filled the streets. Police warn the demonstrators intend to, quote, destroy, injure, and kill in response to the French government. Uh, sorry, in response, the French government has deployed 13,000 officers, with nearly half of them sent to Paris. Protests continued this morning with striking railway workers in Paris, burning flares and flags. Interior Minister Gérard Dominion said more than 1,000, quote, radical troublemakers could join the marches. Of course, they are joined by ranks of uh, real, uh, uh, teachers and others who are participating in a general strike, showing solidarity against these proposed uh, pension uh, raises in the, in the age that people will 
receive their pensions. According to AP News, union leaders and those in opposition to President Emmanuel Macron blame his government for the protest violence and have said that his push to raise France's legal retirement age from 62 to 64 sparked it. Trade union protesters have blocked the entrance to Paris's Louvre Museum. Critics say that police officers have used excessive force against protesters and a police oversight body is investigating claims of wrongdoing by officers, again, according to the AP. Joining us now to weigh in is international editor at El Ciudadano Medio Platform, Dennis Rogachuk. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be back on, on The Rising. Yes, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us more about what you see uh, going on and, and what you think this all means. I think that uh, you know, these mass protests that we're seeing in France right now, it is really, I would say, it's really a culmination of the public anger that has been felt against the presidency of Emmanuel Macron. We have to remember that uh, this attempt to raise the retirement age uh, from 62 to 64 has long been on his agenda. In fact, originally Emmanuel Macron uh, w wanted to push the retirement uh, age to 65, or a bit, a bit uh, gradually. Uh, now, this is actually this is essentially formed part uh, basis of his uh, economic reforms since his first election as president in uh, 2017. Um, uh, but I would say, but I would say, in the current context of the events, you know, the mass protests uh, that we're seeing is actually a sign of uh, of the weakness of the of the Macron presidency, and this we this weakness is expressed uh, most uh, strongly in the lack of the parliamentary majority, which uh, his uh, coalition uh, kind of has. Uh, because we have to we have to remember that. Um, although, uh, although Emmanuel Macron won the presidential election, uh, his party actually lost uh, the majority in the France's uh, National Assembly. In the previous weeks, he attempted to broker a deal with the uh, right-wing uh, Republicans uh, coalition, France, but uh, that, that, fell, that really fell through. So uh, the only real option that was left to him uh, in order to attempt to push through uh, this, you know, uh, this uh, the, the rising of the retirement of the retirement age was to use the controversial forty nine point three um, article of the of the constitution, basically basically granting himself emergency powers in order to implement uh, this uh, re this reform, and this of course added a whole uh, another layer another layer of. Uh, of, say, of public anger and of, uh, let's say, really at, uh, at, at, at the disgust uh, of his presidency. Yeah, I think that's some really important context. So what you're saying is that there doesn't seem to be, uh, obviously, there's no not a lot of public support for this, as evidenced by the protests, <clears throat> but even political support, there's been no ability uh, for Macron to pass this uh, change to the pension uh, uh, age legislatively, uh, politically, and try to claim executive authority to be able to do it, and that's what's provoked this latest round of protests. Can you speak to a little bit more to the history? I mean, why you? what do you think is motivating Macron to take this deeply politically uh, unappealing move uh, and to kind of weather the storm of having, you know, a million-plus protesters in the street of Paris right now, uh, stoppages of picking up uh, garbage, people dumping—we've uh, seen this incredible footage of, of uh, garbage trucks emptying the 
their their garbage in front of cafes while people sit on and, and watch <laughs> passively or join in the streets. You know, why take all of that on if there is there seems to be no political support, um, kind of legislatively or in among the public? Well, I believe that you actually illustrated in a great way uh, the way that this uh, that this strike has actually has actually united a great um, sort of uh, a, gr a great number of the different uh, sectors of the French uh, working class. Uh, since I say the main the main driver force of this of the strike is of course uh, the general confederation of labor, but uh, as you just mentioned, uh, the uh, sanitary workers and the workers in the yeah. You know, you know, you know, the garbage man, and even those, even those who employed in the cleaning service, have also have also joined in uh, on the action, uh, as you say. Now, uh, the reason why Macron is pushing this through, I believe, it's actually it's actually rather simple. Uh, we have to remember that uh, since the beginning of the um, of the of the conflict in Ukraine, and since uh, France pledging to uh, to, to support uh, the Ukrainian government. In this in this conflict, and also implementing sanctions uh, against Russia, together with the other uh, members of the European Union and the United States, uh, the France the France's uh, social and economic crisis has certainly accelerated. Uh, this is in, uh, this is particularly with, with regards to the uh, you know the rising living costs, uh, rising in, uh, inflation, uh, rising energy prices, uh, everything and. Uh, the rising in the retirement age, age, I believe that one of the main uh, motivators for Macron was uh, was actually this uh, this very economic crisis. Uh, so this is seen as as a measure of trying to, uh, of, of trying to deal with the uh, with the with the enormous budget deficits that have been uh, created as a result of um, uh, the rising energy costs mm. uh, in the country. So. Yeah, I mean, that creates an obvious issue. I, I mean, people, you know, people live a lot longer than they used to when, I don't know exactly when France has, uh, you know, specifically structured it this way. The U.S. has raised uh, the retirement age to, I think, what, close 67 uh, for many workers. So is there, is there an, you know, a, a, an issue of expecting, you know, younger people, working people to keep you know, providing for people who've retired and are now going to be around for a lot longer than previous generations used to at, at a, you know, at a time of such difficult economic crunches, as you point out. I believe that well, there, are, there are certainly uh, see, the social and the cultural uh, aspects uh, of, this, of this reform. We have to remember that uh, France currently has uh, one of the most generous pension systems in the world. I believe that, according to the latest statistics, uh, once the French workers retire, retire uh, on average, on average, uh, their pe their pension is the is equivalent of approximately seventy five percent of the full time earnings of their full time earnings in their previous uh, job, and this is a I'll say this is really like one of the main foundations of the. Uh, of the French welfare state is one of the main, say, foundations of, of the of this, you know, of this uh, of the social fabric uh, of of France, it, and I believe it has uh, also been like a, a point of pride uh, of the of the French workers uh, for a very long time. Uh, there is uh, there is also definitely this uh, you know th there is this aspect uh, that 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 you, that you mentioned, uh, which I, which I believe has also been used. 
um, you know, this argument has, has, has often say, been used as a justification for the uprising of, uh, of, the, of the retirement age. Um, uh, I believe, but, but this is a for reform that certainly would, would, also, would also actually impact the younger generation uh, in the, uh, more so than the generation which has already retired or is about to retire. Because according to Macron, uh, this, uh, this, ch this change will only be fully and completely implemented uh, by 2030. So it will most likely actually uh, affect the, um, uh, the, the population that is currently in their 30s and their 40s and their in their 50s, uh, rather than the retirees that are about to, uh, uh, that are about to end employment uh, right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's similarly the case in the United States that an aging population is is or a longer living population is used as a justification for efforts, uh, principally by conservatives, to raise the retirement age here as well. Of course, there are reforms like simply uh, not having a regressive tax to fund Social Security. That also could be an option, but. Uh, in a country where uh, millionaires set the agenda, uh, there's a lot of resistance to actually just taxing the rich uh, to fund retirement programs for working people. Thank you so much for joining us here, Didis, today. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. The views Whoopi Goldberg hit out against political correctness yesterday. Let's watch. There has to be a book of stuff you nobody could ever say. And then we could all study. Ever, ever, ever. Then the book include, would be banned. Include everything. Include, include everything. Because I tell you, the things that change, you yeah. can say this, but you can't say that. But next week, you might not be able to say this. It's hard to keep up. It's hard to keep up. And if you're a person of a certain age, there's stuff we do and we say. You know what I'm saying. And it's also, you have no idea until somebody says, oh, by the way. Yeah. You should know that just because we're on television, wherever we are, whoever we're talking about, just because we're on television doesn't mean we know everything. We don't know everything you're not supposed to do. And if there's something someone says, if you're not going to give them the opportunity to explain why they said it, at least give them the grace of saying, you know what, I, I've just been informed that I should not have done that, as opposed to you're out. That rant was in response to the removal of a Mississippi news anchor who was removed for quoting Snoop Dogg live on air. Let's actually go ahead and play that before we discuss. I'm up with. I think that'd be pretty cool. Before we know it, she'd have a Snoop Dogg tattoo on her shoulder. A shizzle, my nizzle. <laughs> I'm telling you. Julie, what do you think about that? Huh. Huh. So the, apparently that reporter who's been at that station for about 20 years was fired for using a phrase that was popularized uh, by Snoop Dogg in the last decade so plus or so. I had no idea what the origin of that phrase even was until you told me about 40 seconds ago. Yeah, I never even like thought about it that hard, but of course technically it means for sure my N-word. So, so mm -hmm. technically I mean, the idea that she is that she's being fired for using the n-word sort of That's so dumb but i, I do think it's, it's one of those things dumb. that you don't think about that hard and Whoopi is kind of right this woman's real crime is being a gen xer who <laughs> was probably out here in the in the streets in the clubs when that when that phrase was ubiquitous i yeah i can recall <laughs> hearing people say that a lot 
a lot. I don't remember. And it, it, Without it was, any malice intended. Yeah, it was a different time, and I can't say for sure if I remember there being a discussion about, you know, do white people say it or seeing white people say it, but it was it was it was Everybody not was treated about stuff like that. It was not it was in no way treated with the same gravity as the actual N-word at any point. At any point. So yeah. I even if it were an accident, I think Whoopi is right. If you stumble across a new social boundary and we decide, okay, it is a little cringe for a white lady to be using a word that is derived from the N-word, okay, fine. Do we need to fire her or do we just I, give yeah. a warning and then she she apologized on air? It, shouldn't that just be the end of it? Was anyone calling for her to be disciplined for this? No. I, I assume no. Um, as far as I saw, managers are so risk averse. So I, I can assume I can I can picture either they get like one hostile comment about this somewhere on the segment online or on Twitter or something. A manager sees and is like, oh, we have to take action. Everyone is everyone's alarmed. Everyone's mad. Or a you know the DEI HR type person is like, no, we have to take action. So there's not some kind of claim. Yeah, as far as I saw, and you know this was all over like black media. Folks was it? Were, were like not wanting her to get fired. People thought it was kind of amusing, and I saw very little in the way of people thinking that the consequence for this should be firing. So again, it just really, really begs the question, who is this angering and who is it for? From a labor perspective, it's really disturbing to think that people's whole careers go down the drain because of one off-color comment that is maybe not even off-color. Um, it is not intended with malice. It, it's a sorry state of affairs, and I think it really does point to the fact that while so much of this politically incorrect stuff is painted as, a, as partisan issues, this stuff isn't. We're all living in a society where norms are changing and they catch people up in, in bad ways all the time across the ideological spectrum. And I do wish sometimes we could put some of the ideological stuff aside, the partisan stuff mm -hmm. aside, so we can have a conversation as a community about how we want to deal with situations like this without being like, well, it's cancel culture. Well, it's not cancel culture. Right. Well, I believe cancel culture is real, so I'm going to deny that this was an issue. No, if we just talk about it on a case-by-case -case basis, I think that we all pretty much agree 90% of the time. Well, right, and what, 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 what we said there was very uh, perceptive. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk... The ladies on The View do this, you and I do this. We talk for hours every day. Um, we don't know everything. We try to bring on experts for things we particularly don't know as much about. Um, and, but yeah, you can say something that's wrong, you can misspeak, you could inadvertently, unintentionally say something that's offensive. And you know, I, I understand holding public figures or media figures to a, a higher bar sure. than your average person. I, I think. I think it's even. This is even crazier if, like, you know, the convenience store cashier or something says says that that phrase <laughs> and uh, and gets fired over it. Like, that's even more ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but for shizzle, you know, <laughs> for shizzle, right? The for shizzle part's not the not the even potentially problematic part for shizzle. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, it, it's a. I think it's a nice reminder that. You know, political correctness gone amok, amok is like an 85% we all agree issue mm -hmm. where we all find this annoying and people lose their jobs too easily or they get expelled or they get fired or they get, or people or horrible media figures go di looking for things they said when they were little that were offensive. You know, what if, what if they went, you know, searching for her social, I mean, her social media history from 20 years ago <laughs> and they find out she was 16 and she, and she first sold something <laughs> and, uh, and tried to get her, you know, that stuff happens all the time. Her social media, I bet you money is all like, what's up commercials. <laughs> <laughs> like, she seems like she was really like plugged in. Yo quiero Taco Bell. <laughs> 
<laughs> Look, best of wishes to this woman. I, I hope that she lands on her feet. I hope that there is a public response um, that buoys her and they consider uh, not having any professional consequences against her. And, and look, and shout out to the women of The View for uh, landing correctly on this one. By the way, what do you make of, what do you make of uh, Whoopi Goldberg's uh, idea of, like, let there be a list? Let there be a list. So we know what we're not. And you can hold me accountable to the list, but that, that way if I make a mistake, you can't fire me because I'm this list is a, protect a protection Just tell us the me. rules. Yeah. Of course. Now, some people do make these lists. The they're called list. uh, they're called university <laughs> what you can say commissions. Remember those those fun things? Yeah. Where they said uh, um, no uh, grandfathered in. No, no no rule of thumb. No Karen. No Karen. Remember they said say problematic white lady instead. <laughs> it was more offensive. They racialized Karen. Right. These, these idiots who try to purport to say what we're going to say. You know the same people after Agatha Christie and Roald Dahl yeah. and Ian Fleming and all the rest. Yeah. Um, well, this this Mississippi newscaster is one problematic white woman I stand. By. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for shizzle. More rising after this. While journalist and Twitter Files author Matt Taibbi was testifying on Capitol Hill for Congressman Jim Jordan's weaponization of the government hearings on March 9th, IRS agents actually came to his doorstep claiming issues with his 2018 and 2021 tax returns that same day. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, yesterday, Jordan sent a letter to IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen seeking an explanation for why Taibbi received this unexpected guest. Taibbi tweeted in response, for those asking, I don't want to comment on the IRS issue pending an answer to Chairman Jim Jordan's letter. I'm not worried for myself, but I did feel the committee should be aware of the situation. So that's some pretty suspicious timing. Uh, the, an IRS agent shows up uh, to ask him about some tax irregularities uh, around the same time that he is testifying on Capitol Hill about what he's uncovered vis-a-vis -vis the efforts by various government agencies to press their social media companies to suppress speech, specifically Twitter. Um, yeah, that sounds like an act of intimidation to me. Yeah, I mean, the act, regardless of the timing, it would be an act of intimidation. It's actually kind of odd that if there was a coordination that they wouldn't know that Matt Taibbi wouldn't be home <laughs> because he's testifying at this very public hearing. But regardless, you know, it, it's not a good look uh, to be arguing that Matt Taibbi is overreacting or somehow um, inaccurate when he describes the weaponization of the intelligence in agencies to influence social media and to have political influence more broadly, and then to have this kind of a presumed audit uh, appear literally at his doorstep. Now, is it, could it be a coincidence? Of course, anything's possible. Mm -hmm. Could it be the case that there are legitimate inquiries to be made here? Of course, it's possible. But this is the issue. When there are all of these instances lined up against each other, when you're able to, you know, weave together a narrative that's really compelling. When you point to the raid at Mar-a-Lago, when you point to the way Matt Taibbi's being treated here, it, it starts to become a presumption of guilt. And it's incumbent on the government to prove that it's actually um, running its agencies with the interests, the state interests of the agencies in mind, instead of trying to target various citizens who are going against the administration. Well, and because the tax code is so complicated, um, it's especially complicated for people who work 
odd jobs or multiple yeah. jobs um, uh, or freelance journalistic work like how Taibi operates. Um, I mean, now maybe he's more regular at Substack is probably his main source of income. But it would not be surprising to me if there's some technicality just just because of probably the, the various sources of revenue he has. Uh, it's very easy for, again, procedural crimes. The government can always get you on some procedural issue, always. There's not a person on this on this earth who can swear, who could promise that they haven't done something technically in violation of an IRS statute or procedure because it's so tremendously complicated. And they leave yeah. it to you to figure it out. Yeah. They know it, but they leave it to you to figure it yes. out. Uh, so, and a forever reminder that the, the IRS would simply tell you how dumb. much you owe every year, but tax preparing companies, uh, TurboTax, spend millions of dollars in lobbying fees to make sure that that never happens and you still need to rely on their services. This is, this is how... Uh, this is what's so pernicious about a kind of deep state um, uh, regime, mm -hmm. whereby they, you know, they don't harass or hassle everyone. Sometimes you can dissent. If you're not annoying them, it's fine. But they have a little file on you, maybe, or they, they have some tool they can use. You cause make too much, you cause too much, too many problems. You draw too much attention to yourself on social media or somewhere else. They go, well, what's the deal with that person? What do we know about that person? And there's always something. There's always something. And yeah. that's a that, again, honestly, that is akin to what we criticize the Chinese government for operating yes. in that way. It is, it is happening. And look, I am, I am not trying to draw in my radar and other places I talk about this. I'm not trying to draw some false kind of comparison between the U.S. government and the Chinese government. I consider the Chinese government to be much more authoritarian than the U.S. government, um, including on the questions of speech. What, what the Chinese government allows its own citizens to have access to is less than us. But... Look, I have been blown away by the extent of the pressuring that various government, U.S. government agencies made. It, it was just so much more vast than we would have known about three years ago. Yeah, I mean, look, there is, there is an argument that when you have kind of a structural protections, like our constitutional speech protections, that it can provide a false sense of security, mm -hmm. uh, and that, frankly— Governments who want to venture into authoritarian waters are able to do so regardless of what technical prohibitions there are against it. And that what you end up with is just a system where the uh, abridgment of speech and these kind of what we perceive to be a fundamental rights is just more discreet uh, in a way that actually makes it more difficult to push back against the United States than in some yeah. other countries. And that, I mean, that again is a, an overstatement. But I, I, you know, I do think there's something to the idea that. Uh, a certain kind of um, pat legal protections can cause Americans to rest on their laurels and presume that they have certain rights intact that actually aren't. And I think your radar pointed to some um, the potential uh, harms that could come from what is the Restrict Act. Mm -hmm. um, and this is another scary moment. Again, we don't know exactly what happened here. Uh, Matt Taibbi is, I think, being wisely waiting to find out more before he says too much about this on the internet. But I think it, he's right. He, people are right to be suspicious about this, and I think the onus is on the government to prove that they're acting in good faith at this point. I knew someone uh, who used to uh, work with me at Reason Magazine and uh, who was very active writing about and reporting on police and criminal justice, and uh, he talked about once, I think he wrote about this, I'm pretty sure it's public, uh, the one time police just kind of visited house, his house just for no particular reason, it seemed, just kind of wanted to have a conversation with him, and how frightening and alarming that was. Because the government has a lot of power to make your life miserable, just yeah. utterly miserable, to bog you down in, uh, in uh, IRS audits are a pain in the butt. Yeah, I mean, 
mean, this is the argument that people have been making about uh, police activity uh, and the, mm -hmm. the cho choice to focus on certain neighborhoods, largely predominantly black neighborhoods, that people feel like they've been under surveillance, that people who haven't done anything wrong are getting regular pat-downs during the uh, kind of stop-and-frisk Bloomberg era in, in New York City. Uh, the stats were overwhelming. Basically, if you were a black man between the ages of like 18 and 35, you were patted down by the police at some point in, the, in any given year. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, one, you feel that same pressure. Any interaction can go the wrong way. We've seen this a million times with a million police cam body footage instances of people being shot by the police with undue force. And moreover, if you have done something kind of wrong, like say you're carrying some um, amount of marijuana on you before it was legalized, it means that if you're not part of the surveilled population, you're much less likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system than if you are a part of the surveilled population. So the police have the ability to create criminal justice outcomes, not on the basis of who is more or less guilty, but based on who they choose to focus on. And that's exactly what's happening here. The police or the, the intelligence agencies could choose to focus on someone like Matt Taibbi because they are inconvenient to the uh, administration to the political infrastructure are shining a, f a flashlight on bad actions by the intelligence agency the agencies themselves and it's not a you know at a certain point there's the issue of fundamental guilt or innocence but there's also this issue of if you just look hard enough in a certain place are you going to find something that's technically wrong are you going to be able to have a situation like we saw in Brazil where there was some technical corruption that got uh, Lula thrown into jail um, and are people going to finally wake up and realize that, that this idea that, well, if you didn't do anything wrong, you shouldn't be concerned, is a license for these kind of organizations to terrorize folks? Yeah, it's never been true. Well, if you, people will say, well, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to hide. Right. That's not how it works. Because right. you could have done, you also could have truly done nothing wrong. They investigate you. And then in the course of the investigation, you may, you have some interaction with them uh, where you, you don't speak with perfect truth because you recall things differently, and then they'll, they'll get you on perjury, obstruction of justice, something like that. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, you have to be very wary of these of these actions they can subject you to. Yeah. So uh, I, I was I was very chilled to see this. Uh, the IRS should back off uh, just to remove the potential that this has anything to do with uh, the testimony that uh, Matt Taibbi offered and the work he is doing to expose these same exact agencies for, in my view, violating the First Amendment rights of Americans, at least violating the ethos of free speech that should prevail in this country. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll have more rising right after this. The UN Security Council shot down a Russian draft proposal to launch an investigation into the sabotage that blew up the Nord Stream pipelines last summer. Now, on Monday, all but three member states voted against establishing an independent probe into the attack. Brazil, China, and Russia voted in favor. It did not go unnoticed that the majority of the UN body seemed to have turned the cheek on getting to the bottom of what truly happened to Nord Stream. The Russian government is adamant that Germany, Denmark, and Sweden are involved in covering up the U.S.'s role in the said sabotage, which the White House continues to deny. And this is the issue. The very people that are being tasked with the investigation are arguably complicit, um, you know, per the reporting by Syed Hirsch, et cetera, in the actual sabotage. And it seems like a no-brainer to many folks, uh, including Jeffrey Sachs, who testified at the hearing in, in favor of there being some independent UN body doing an investigation, um, that, that there, there should be somebody other than people who have been 
fingered in the sabotage, looking into the sabotage, for some reason, the UN, which is exactly that kind of a body that's been ostensibly set up to serve this exact purpose, is turning a blind eye, turning turning its cheek and saying that uh, Russia and Germany and, and people who were directly harmed by the sabotage should basically accept that they're never going to potentially get to the bottom of what happened here. I think it goes to show why it's so hard to take the U.S. government at their word that we had nothing to do with this when you have all these uh, very suspicious factors, including the statements by Biden, by Victoria Newland, uh, and others about before the explosion about how Nord Stream will do, it will be handled. It will not be operational, which <laughs> sound like they're indicating some kind of e U.S. involvement down the line. And then something happens to Nord Stream, and now they don't want an independent investigation. Um, they have shifted from saying, "Well, Russia did this," but now that that's not believable, so now it's well. Some non-state actor, maybe mm -hmm. a Russian non-state actor, maybe a Ukrainian non-state actor, who knows? We think they're probably responsible. But no evidence has been put forward, really, to show that either. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of legitimate questions. There was good reporting from Cy Hirsch, who we've interviewed on, uh, on Rising, who responded, I, I think, quite eloquently to some of the criticisms others have had about his story and, you know, whether the details about, you know, where, what the radar was showing, where the boats were and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you, you know, go watch that interview if you're uh, curious for, for how he responds. But, uh, but look, we, we definitely we need an independent investigation. We have to know. Um, it could be, again, it, maybe it was the Ukrainians on their own. Did they inform the U.S.? Maybe it was the U.S. ordered. Maybe something else, uh, but we deserve to know, and Look, the, the there needs to be an investigation. Look, the whole point of the Cyhurst reporting, and, and this is what the media, the mainstream media is getting away with, by not reporting on the Cyhurst report, not talking about this, the details of the Cyhurst reporting. The whole point is that he describes what it would take. There's, there's unknowns here, right? But there are certain knowns, like how much explosive material would be necessary to actually have the effect on a pipe like this that is fortified to the extent it is in, in the concrete and materials it's fortified with. What it would take from a technical perspective mm -hmm. to get divers down to the bottom of the sea to do something like this. And what it would take from an intelligence perspective to be able to get unspotted to this point in the ocean and conduct this, right? Those are the knowns. And what Cy Hirsch did, which none of the other reporting, including this piece in the New York Times from last week or the week before that seemed to be Putting forward a narrative that, shall we say, is very convenient to the intelligence interests of the United States mm -hmm. uh, is that Cy Hirsch offers an explanation for how the kind of physical barriers to conducting an attack like this could be overcome. Pointing to the fact that there are only so many places in, a, in the world where divers are trained with this kind of capacity, and pointing to the fact that Amer you know there was this uh, training camp in the what was it the, the Caribbean where this happened in the. In the uh, off the coast of the United States, that there are the Danish, uh, Danish divers who similarly have the capacity to do this, that there was this um, uh, boat exercise that was happening in, in June at that time of year that could provide cover for Western ships being in the area, et cetera, et cetera. And by contrast, the New York Times piece that came out that I talked about in my radar a, a week or two ago pointed to the idea that there was this boat that they found, which seemed to not potentially have the capacity to carry the amount, the weight of explosives that were required to carry out this attack, was discovered that was supposed to have 
resolve this whole issue. Oh, someone drove out there on this boat. Moreover, the New York Times story corroborated aspects of Cy Hirsch's reporting, because what, it, to your point, what did people say to Cy Hirsch? That the radar would have picked up this boat. It couldn't possibly be the case that, that your narrative is That's true. That's what people said to say that Cy Hirsch that was Cy wrong. Hirsch was wrong. Now here comes this New York Times story, which exonerates the U.S. Right. government, which also relies on a boat being able to get to the same place undetected by radar, and which corroborates Cy Hirsch's explanation of why it is that boats can, in fact, avoid that kind of detection. So now here we are. The UN Security Council has voted. Notably, it's not just that Brazil, China, and Russia were the only ones in favor. There were no no votes. The rest were abstentions. And so, you know, this is maybe goes to Trita Parsi's point uh, about how there is this ambivalence in much of the rest of the world about how the U.S. and its allies are handling the situation in Ukraine. And while maybe they aren't at a point where they're willing to come out forcefully against it the way that, you know, Brazil, China, and Russia have done, it doesn't seem, they're not, the U.S. isn't getting hearty uh, uh, support from the rest of the world mm -hmm. as they basically say, no, we don't want an investigation into uh, infrastructure sabotage that if anywhere else, anyone else did it in any other part of the world, we'd be saying this was a terrorist act that our, an investigation. Right, that our position, the U.S. government's position, is that we don't know who did it. Right. So aren't we curious? No, nope, we don't want to know. If we genuinely know. don't know <laughs> who did it, don't we want to know if Russia is capable of this? Don't we want to know what our what our ally Zelensky is capable of? Well, they Don't know we that want to know what Russian and Ukrainian separatist, not state-aligned groups are capable of? Isn't that relevant for the kinds of weapons we are going to equip them with, that they're going to end up left with, as we saw in, in the Middle East, when we, we sent weapons and they ended up eventually in the hands of people we didn't want to have them? These seem like important questions that we should be operating we would want all the facts so that we can better structure our Ukraine policy. Even if it's going to be the same policy of supporting them, you'd think we want to know. So the fact that we are not particularly curious is a little interesting. Yes, isn't someone it? stole cookies from the cookie jar and they want to appoint the six year old with crumbs all over its face to investigate the crime. Mm -hmm. Rules based order, I don't know. I, I don't I know call how much. It the fools based order. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, this, it's kind of like not, it's not funny, but I don't know what you can do other than laugh because of how flagrant this sort of a thing is. It's the UN. What possible excuse could you have? You know, and by the way, I interviewed Rokan about this on my podcast a uh, week before last. And I asked him specifically whether he thought that the UN should investigate this and or whether there should be some independent congressional investigation into the U.S.'s involvement. And his answer was basically he doesn't think it's risen to that. Really? He doesn't, he doesn't think it's necessary. Well, Republican Senator Mike Lee didn't agree. He said uh, he would like to see an investigation. You know, he put out a statement saying that he wants to eliminate the U.S. as a potential suspect, but he's not able to do that based on the statements that, again, Biden made. Very incriminating statements about this happening. That's, like, that's why you're—I I think even people who really don't think the U.S. did it have to be um, aware of how it looks, given right. what— the State Department said. Right. So, so there, there needs to be an investigation. And, and look, look, this matters. This matters for Europe. This matters for, um, for again, for an ally, for Germany that was going to, uh, this was going to be an energy source. Yes. Uh, you know, we're talking all about the energy crisis in Europe, um, frustration, protests, et cetera, uh, you know, people not being able to heat their homes. Um, and th that's going to have an impact on European NATO desire to to support the war. And of course, they're not actually, they're not doing nearly as much to financially support the Ukrainians as the U.S. is. Um, I, I think a lot of us think that even if this war is going to continue and Ukraine's going to get 
continue getting support, that uh, honestly that should fall to Ukraine's own neighbors yeah. more so than the U.S. Uh, actually, this is you know this is a criticism Trump has made of kind of foreign policy going back forever that resonates with a lot of people, and, and I don't think it's wrong that like we shouldn't be the world's like policemen policeman and yeah. piggy bank that we're responsible for funding for you know protecting the forces of good all over the globe. Um, Europe and Europe, European countries get to be free riders here, and that's not really fair given this is. This is and this is a very European issue. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, it, you know, the people are not going to be willing necessarily to support something uh, to, to support the people of Europe being more involved in funding the Ukrainian defense when they can't keep their the lights on in their yeah, own and in homes. Fact, we talked about this with a guest um, on today's show uh, from France who's talking about what are some of the motivators of the mm -hmm. protests and million people in the streets in Paris are. They're trying to raise the pension age, and the justification is largely that they have these deficits that are created by the energy crisis that was created by the Ukraine war. So now they're telling French citizens who's worked their whole lives, you have to work a few extra years so we can fund this proxy war that really has nothing to do with us anyway. And people, I think, are justifiably very upset about that, and millions of them have decided to take to the streets as a consequence and do uh, general strikes, mass labor strikes in the country. Mm. So. This, this, is a, this is a crisis that has far-reaching implications, and yet no one in the UN Security Council seems to be especially interested in finding out uh, what's going on here, absent Brazil, Russia, China. Odd that. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with another fantastic edition of our show. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Goodbye.